rather have Jesus, which comes from an old hymn. Now, a hymn is something that I sang when I was a kid. Um, some of you have never sung a hymn. Um, it was sung to organ music. Um, I visited a church not too long ago, and they played an organ. It was wonderful. I, I wonder if that'll ever catch on. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. And uh, it was a hymn that said, uh, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, was the whole line that that came from. And then there's a, a rhyming line, or riches untold. Does anybody really mean that when they sing it? Could we actually echo Jen's prayer this morning? Can you think about the wealthiest neighborhood, building, town, place you've ever personally been to? And can you think of the poorest town place, neighborhood you've ever been to. If we had a lot of time, it'd be fun to get six of you to tell us your answers to those questions. I uh, had the privilege a number of years ago of going with a, a group of Christian educators to uh, the slums of Lima, Peru, and uh, wandered about and met folks who lived in uh, shacks made out of uh, cardboard and corrugated steel and had no running water and no electricity and uh, no regular way to uh, afford food other than just scavenging. But uh, Christian missionaries in the area had created a, a co-op so that uh, six days a week, um, at least for lunch, uh, people could come. And uh, because they pooled their resources and bought in bulk, um, they were able to serve a, a healthy, nutritious meal uh, at a dirt cheap price that even those people there could afford. And if somebody literally couldn't afford it at all, then they were still given a good meal. Cer certainly uh, nothing else that I've personally been in ranks, uh, ranks with that. And we're not talking about a, a city block. We're talking about several square miles that just go on and on and on. I think the wealthiest, well, it's not a neighborhood because houses are too far apart, I think, to call it a neighborhood. <laughs> um, they'd be about spaced about as far apart as farmhouses, except it was in a city in western Connecticut where one of my wife's relatives actually owned a property that, uh, if you've ever seen the original movie, The Great Gatsby, all I can say is that's what the house looked like, except it was all white. Um, and uh, in the modern era, you had to have three Wi-Fi codes depending on which part of the house you were in. And that didn't even count the uh, 
the horse barn that had been turned into kind of like a dormitory for 10 more guests, um, or the area around the Olympic-sized swimming pool. Um, And all they did was have three kids. What What do you do with all that space? And it was really interesting. We were there because of a of a relative's uh, uh, funeral, and uh, everybody gathered together in the kitchen because the kitchen was the only room that you could actually sort of spread out in and still be close enough to each other to hear each other. Um, They didn't need any of the rest of that space. What do we do? when we see those kind of disparities in material possessions. I know there are people, especially young people, who sometimes decide it's time to be an activist. It's time to go on a campaign to uh, change the world. Sometimes that's tied up with, uh, we need more socialism in this country. There's a potential political candidate running right now who appeals to that in a lot of folks. The government needs to take care of the problem. And then there's a second reaction that uh, people of lots of ages um, sometimes tend to gravitate to, and it's the exact opposite. The problem is we're not capitalist enough. We're not free market enough. We need to go back to what Ronald Reagan called trickle-down economics. As the rich get wealthy, some of that trickles down. Well, yeah, but sometimes a trickle isn't very much. (laughs) And then there's a third reaction that I suspect is the most common of all. In a world of millions of refugees and wars every time we turn around, especially in the Middle East, and just when we thought it was uh, fairly safe here, then uh, the Chinese send their latest germ warfare. Um, That's a joke. Uh, And everybody is... uh, excited and concerned about uh, the coronavirus. (laughs) Of course, as Christians, we should remember our history of being the people who are there to help others in times of plague and famine and disease, not worrying about our own safety, overly so. I'm not sure that's always happening right now. What would Jesus do? Anybody remember the bracelets? (laughs) What would Jesus say about all this stuff about our stuff? Well, he told a story once. We call his stories parables. This one is found in Luke chapter 16. Oh, okay. I knew I missed something. 
Do you celebrate it enough that you all bring it with you? Or do you expect it to be provided for you on the screen when you can't see any context or see how it's related to anything else? Oh well. <laughs> Next week, we prayed you wouldn't leave here without being transformed. Henceforth, you always bring something you can consult. And I won't even be here to check up on you. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And I want to read it in three parts. Take it one part at a time. Jesus said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. I call these three verses the extravagant banqueter versus the helpless destitute. You probably just know it as the rich man and Lazarus. Two characters who are almost caricatures of the extremes in Jesus' world. Kind of like I tried to paint with my own description about a cousin by marriage's estate versus uh, a huge barrio in Peru. The very first sentence begins, there was a rich man, a plusios, one of a number of words for rich in the New Testament. This one always means socioeconomically, lavishly wealthy who was dressed in purple, the color of royalty. Why did that get associated with royalty in the ancient world? Purple came from the dye made out of the secretion of little seashells, and you had to get a lot of them to make even a few garments. And so, most people never wore purple. Most people never owned purple. It was something for the very wealthy, like royalty. And fine linen. I don't know whether you consider your clothes fine or not, but in Jesus' world, that was the upper crust. That was the, the best uh, you could get and lived in luxury every day. The, the verb there can, can mean generally living in luxury, or it can focus specifically on feasting sumptuously. Some translations put it that way. This is the person who goes out to the finest restaurant for three meals a day, and you know how much that would cost and wears the nicest clothes, tailor-made, 
with the most expensive decoration and color and adornment. He is on Easy Street. Don't raise your hand, but how many people are secretly jealous? <laughs> but then, at his doorstep, as so often happens, even today in many parts of the world, at his gate was laid a beggar. No, not one of those who's got a pimp watching over him and takes 90% of the money he collects, like sometimes happens in downtown Denver. But somebody in the ancient world who was destitute and desperate, covered with sores, physically ill. Probably his life was in danger, so we're not surprised to read in a little bit that he dies. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Just crumbs. But, but where is he? He's outside the gate. He's not allowed in. D does he do some dumpster diving when they toss out the trash? I don't know, but it doesn't even say he gets to eat it. Maybe he did. It says longing to eat. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Oh, it's interesting how so many commentators want to salvage something here. And so they say, yeah, at least the dogs came and were nice to him. <sighs> dogs licking open sores is not comforting. I've had dogs lick healing sores it is not comforting <laughs> this is all there to heighten the misery of the man the extravagant banqueter versus the helpless destitute beggar but there's a second scene Verses 22 through 26. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone come over, cross over from there to us. An irrevocable destiny for each man in the afterlife. Now, there are all kinds of things that can distract us and get us off task. 
in, in these verses. Is this a literal depiction of hell? Is Hades different than hell? Are there going to be people who are going to want to go from heaven to hell? I wouldn't. <laughs> it's a parable. It's a fictitious story. Jesus often does talk about a place of a lot of fire for those who reject him forever. But he also talks about outer darkness. And last time I checked, if you absolutize either one of those, it cancels the other out. <laughs> it's, it's probably all vivid word pictures or metaphors for saying, this is going to be a very unpleasant state of existence. The focus is that it can't be changed. There aren't second chances after death. There is an unbridgeable chasm. That means we need to come to grips and we need to find every possible way by love and tact or urgent rebuke or anything in between to encourage those we love and care about not to reject God, but to come to him by turning to Christ. But wait a minute. The one guy was super rich, so he gets damned. The other guy was super poor, so he gets saved. This, this isn't salvation by grace through faith, as the Apostle Paul so memorably put it. This sounds like salvation by socioeconomic bracket. <laughs> Or have we missed something? There would have been plenty of people in Jesus' day, and they could turn to Old Testament passages, their scriptures for support, who said, if you're rich, you were blessed by God. And if you're poor, you're being punished by God. And it would be a short step from there to say, and therefore, those who are rich are the most obedient and faithful of Israelites. And those who are poor, anybody ever read all those speeches of Job's quote-unquote friends? <laughs> Must be being punished for your sin. In fact, we have people like that in today's world sometimes called the prosperity gospel. If you just have enough faith, God wants to make you healthy and wealthy. I don't know what happened to wise, but at least healthy and wealthy. Ben Franklin wasn't a part of it. And, and if you stay sick and you stay poor, it's just because you don't have enough faith or you don't have enough obedience. And Jesus stands that teaching completely on its head. But what do we do with the fact that it seems to be all about rich and poor? I recommend we read the rest of the story, verses 27 to 31. He, that is the rich man, answered, Then I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, 
For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There's a couple clues here to what's going on beneath the surface that we don't want to read too fast over. When the man is convinced that his situation is unchangeable, he thinks about his still living relatives and wants them to, verse 30, repent. Implication, he knows that's the problem. No one in his family, himself included, has really ever turned to God. That's what repentance means. So he's not being condemned because he was ridiculously wealthy. There are ridiculously wealthy people who have been ridiculously generous with their wealth in helping others and funding Christian work. But this is not one of them. He has not repented. And there's another clue. But, oh man, we got to know our Old Testament to pick this one up. Lazarus. The only character, the only living character, the only human living character in the parables who's given a name. Oh yeah, Abraham appears here, but he's long dead and with God. We don't know the rich man's name, and in no other parable are the human characters given name. Why is Lazarus named? Is there anything significant to that name in a world, as in all the biblical cultures where names were often very significant? And Lazarus is just the Greek for the Hebrew Eleazar. And now we see, has anybody studied Genesis really carefully? Why Abraham? Abraham sighed. Why not? He just went to heaven, went to be with God. Abraham had a very faithful servant. And his name was Eleazar. Oh, they go together. In fact, the Hebrew Eleazar means God helps. So that's very fitting for this Eleazar as well. We can probably assume he was a pious individual. Most of the poorest people in Israel were, though not all of them. But we have to work awfully hard to come up with those points. How is it that it became apparent that the rich man did not actually know God? What he did and didn't do with his material possessions. 
Oh, but send Lazarus. Raise him from the... Oh, interesting. There's another Lazarus in the Bible who was raised from the dead. He was a real person, not a character in a story. Are we meant to make a link there mentally also? And what happened after that Lazarus was raised from the dead? John 11, if you want to read the story sometime. Immediately afterwards, Caiaphas, the high priest, calls the ruling council together and says, we can't let this go on. We've got to kill Lazarus. <laughs> Isn't that one of the most bizarre things in Scripture? A guy's been raised from the dead. He's causing too much problems, so let's kill him. You really think that's going to work? <laughs> and let's do it to Jesus, too. No. Just because someone is raised from the dead doesn't mean people will automatically believe. It's happened now twice, and it didn't. <laughs> it's happened more than that if you go in all of the Bible. I have met so many skeptics, well, met a lot of them online, <laughs> who have said, I would believe if there was just some really conclusive evidence for the existence of God. And I always try to be tactful. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, in the mood you're in, no, you wouldn't. Because <laughs> you just want to be a rebel. You don't want to submit your life to anybody else's. You want to do it your way, and that doesn't leave any room for God, even if somebody should rise from the dead right here in front of you. You'd find a way to explain it away. Jesus justifies the judgment he gives by highlighting what's really going on in people's hearts. And because the rich man was an Israelite, he had his Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, what Christians call the Old Testament. And so Abraham says, let him read Moses, the books of the law and the prophets. A shorthand way of talking about the whole Bible. wonder why that is. The Old Testament is filled with references. Got a couple up here on the screen next. He says, living in hope. Here it comes. Deuteronomy 15, 11. There need be no poor among you. <laughs> but because of your disobedience, the poor will be with you always. Oh, we sometimes forget the context of that. Micah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you, O oh, human beings? But to show mercy, love justice, and walk humbly with your God. This is the New Testament, you say. Well, fine, let's go to the next line. Somewhere above the sunset. James 2, 14 to 17. A passage where somebody without adequate clothing and no food comes to the Christian assembly and the people say go be warm be well fed and do nothing to help when clearly they're in a position to help 
And James says, even if those people say they have faith, that faith can't save them. Or, a verse that's probably worth reading in its entirety, in the little letter of 1 John, near the end of the New Testament, 3.17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Notice what's not said here. It doesn't say how much I have to do. It doesn't put a percentage on my giving. It doesn't give me a way to ever say, I've done my bit, I'm just fine, thank you. It's all about our heart attitudes. What's going on when you hear a message like this? <laughs> sure glad John and Hannah don't preach like that. Glad this guy's not coming back. <laughs> he even insults us because we don't bring Bibles. I mean, what's, what's that about? <laughs> Probably wouldn't have said anything if I hadn't misunderstood why everybody was whooping. <laughs> Second Corinthians 8 is another entire chapter that's crucial on this topic with verses 13 to 15 perhaps at the heart of it. Paul is collecting funds to help the impoverished Judean Christians after a severe famine. And he writes, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. It's not calling those who have more than an average amount of the world's resources to trade places with those who have less. But that there might be equality, or a term that could also be translated equity. Not, not saying that everyone has exactly the same amount because people have different needs. But at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality or equity. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. And that's a quote from collecting the manna in the wilderness back in Exodus 16. As long as there are people who have too little, some of us have too much. And by global standards, in case there was any doubt in your minds, there is no one below the average <laughs> in this room. We are called to share from our surplus. Nothing more than that. But to be ruthlessly honest about how much is surplus, how much we could free up if we didn't have as many 
of our luxuries. There's one more verse up there, I think. Yay! And it comes right after the one we just read in 1 John. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. I created a bizarre title for this message. Can I be saved without stewardship? And the average person should say, well, <laughs> wait a minute. Isn't, shouldn't the question be, can I sa be saved without grace? And then the answer is obviously no. And that's true. But when a person trusts in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into their hearts and begins a process of transformation that may look slightly different for every person, but does, over time, with all kinds of ups and downs and fits and starts, produce some transformation, including in the area of our spending. If that's never happened to you, if someone could look at your spending records and compare them to an unbeliever and not be able to figure out which one of the two of you is a Christian? God calls us to repent. Calls us to transformation. In some way, wherever he lays on your heart the biggest need, and the churches that we're a part of have to follow suit and do that as well. I assume from the little I've heard that you're a part of one such church. If you ever find yourself in one where everything the church spends its stuff on you can't agree with, well, it's time to go elsewhere. <laughs> Are you ready to be transformed? <laughs> uh, let's pray about it. <laughs> Father, this is hard stuff. We want to be rooted. Our curriculum wisely includes a chapter on money matters. Help us to take stock. Help us to be honest. Help us not to feel we have to imitate anyone, however close we are to them, but to hear directly from you what it would look like for us to be more generous, to find more of the Lazaruses around us, and not just the literal beggars, but people in all kinds of physical and spiritual need 
even in our neighborhood, even in our church, even in our community and country, and certainly throughout our world. Show us how we can help in ways that will make a difference. We'll bring people to you. We'll make their lives a little less miserable. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot to uh, digest there. But the greatest part is, I hope that you uh, truly take a step to digest it. It's so much easier to close our eyes and say, that's, what, that's for someone else. But I ask this, even today, ask the Holy Spirit, is that for me? Because the truth is, it's for all of us today. Those are the words of Jesus. That is the word of God that we celebrate. And if we would take a step towards what he's saying, it brings transformation into our lives. It does. It's funny because it's something that we desire deep within our hearts, but the cost we feel like is too great. But what if the cost that we're not willing to pay is much greater? That we would never know God, that we would never know life in the way that Jesus describes it, in the way that the Word of God describes a life that is for you. Not a life of just everything is easy, but a life filled with the Spirit of God. Would we trade that for our comforts and security? Would we trade that? Let's take a moment. It's hard because now I'm taking offering, but it's maybe it's perfect because naturally in me, I'm like, ugh, you know? But uh, Professor Bloom, uh, Blomberg is absolutely right. We must face this directly. If the guys can come forward, just take another moment. I wrote some questions that he spoke. He says, are you ready to be transformed? Are you ready to be transformed? Then we must take stock. What does it look like to have Jesus truly lead our lives? Not as just this <laughs> gym consultant when we go to the gym and have this trainer only when we want it, but as a master, a leader, a king of our lives, our whole life, including our generosity, including everything we bring in, everything we give out. That makes a difference eternally. I pray we don't take all our stock just for our moments, but we take stock in uh, knowing that our life affects the very person next to you that is connected to the realm of our, our kingdom, what our influence. Heavenly Father, I just ask once again, are you ready to be transformed? Today, I believe men and women and teenagers and people in different moments of their life, we don't all have the same, Lord God, but I believe you're speaking to all of us equally, Lord God, all of our hearts, God. Are you king of every area of our life? And I pray that this giving, Lord God, would be used for two main areas, Lord God, to 
to, to reach the lost, to love the lost, Lord God, to meet the poverty socially, spiritually, and physically here in our city and in this room. And next, to make disciples, Lord God, of Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that's what we're giving to from here in Thornton to Ethiopia to Haiti to the Dominican Republic, Lord God. Let us be a church, Lord, that it doesn't hold on to things so tightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can pass that out. Also, I want to let you guys know there's community dinner coming up on the 16th. So please come out to that. Yeah. And community dinner is time we just spend together. We eat together. We invite all our neighbors. And we cook the best meal possible that we can cook. And we don't want to give just a lame meal. We give our best meal. And we share that with one another here and with the rest of our community. So invite your neighbors. That's the best way. I tried it every other way through social media. Everyone says, that's cool. I'll go and never show up. But people who make invitations, they're always here. So make an invitation make an invitation and also we have uh, urban outreach on the 12th where we come and we serve dinner once again we some for some reason we really like to give, give food right uh, but we support this outreach uh, we give dinner to the homeless and that is on the 12th not only are we giving dinner we start relationships and we love on them and uh, be a part of something that's greater than yourself be a part of generosity overall there's many other things uh, i just want to thank all of you guys who went to the if conference all right <laughs> i heard it was amazing and we'll talk a little more next week uh, but i'm gonna close and i want to thank you just so much i needed to hear that you need to hear that maybe this year is your year of generosity maybe this year is a year where you go beyond yourself way beyond yourself and say this is this is how i, I was talking to my friend paul instead of how much do you need and uh, or, or it, the, really it, that's the question how much do you need not how much do you want i think that's a very different question that we need to ask ourselves so let's pray heavenly father i'm not trying to repeat the message but lord can can we be saved without stewardship the question is very deep lord god because it is by grace but if it is if we it is a mental grace without anything being transformed in the inside do we really understand the life of the gospel lord god of jesus being king of our lives the one that has suffered for our behalf lord i pray lord let that haunt us this, this week lord god let it let it ring out lord and let us let it, that draw us closer to you in jesus name we pray and everyone said amen god bless you thank you for being here if you're new and a guest please fill out those cards we have a gift for you outside thank you guys